Hello, and welcome to Romaniacs. It's week seven in the big pandemic house, and unlike horny Professor Neil Ferguson and immigrant-bashing day-tripper Nigel Farage, we're all still safely locked down. <laughs> Joining me from his law-abiding shelter this week is Ian Dunt, editor of politics.co.uk. Hello, Ian. Hello, hello. So Neil Ferguson of Imperial College, one of the key scientific advisors in this crisis, I mean, this is the closest we have to a sort of celebrity advisor, had to resign from SAGE after being busted for flouting his own lockdown policy in order to see his lover. Uh, do you, do you have any sympathy with his predicament? Well, no, not really. But I, I kind of, I do have the sympathy with her and her husband. It's, it's basically, it's always the person that sort of, I, that there's no public interest in that I end up having the sympathy with. So in his case, of course, I get it, right? If, you've got, if you give out advice and you do the opposite of the advice, then that's a news story, especially in this context. And, you know, it's the hypocrisy that's the story. That's the excuse we will give ourselves. But... Uh, when it actually comes down to it in this, she gets dragged in. Like, why is her face taking up half of the front page of all the newspapers featuring the story? And the reason for that is because, you know, she's a pretty young woman. And people, a news editor will put that on the front of a paper as soon as they can, rather than the picture usually of the guy that she's going with. And so whenever these stories come out, you sort of, A, feel this, like, kind of indignation at the sort of moral curtain-twitching manner in which it's discussed. The fucking Daily Mail this morning, it's always like, shamed woman, cheated on husband, brought down by her brother. You're just like, oh, come on, man, fuck off. And it's none of your, you know, what she gets up to. And I kind of can't help then, even if the coverage is better, having just this image of her household and her husband going through this stuff. And you just think, I, I, I just find it terribly sad. A lot, a lot of people wanted to play it down uh, because it was on the right-wing front pages, just as the UK's death toll surpassed Italy. We'll be talking about that later. Um, the word dead cat was thrown around like a dead cat. Um, <laughs> is, is everyone a kind of, do you think everyone is a media pundit now? That everybody's just going, oh, well, this is obviously designed to distract from... Da, da, da. Whereas I, I suppose because I'm, I'm quite old, um, I was like, it, this is a sex like this is like a sex scare. It's a sex scandal and this hypocrisy, and yeah. they get to put they get to put the, the attractive women on the cover. And it didn't seem like something that, that that had sort of been born in the era of of Brexit and Dominic Cummings. It seemed quite uh, old school to me. Yeah, it is. Yeah, and of course, it's. I mean, it's look. They do not need an excuse to not put news on the front page that they don't want to put on the front page. If they don't want to put it on the front page, they just don't put it on the front page. I mean, the other day. The Sun had a, a factoid about the amount of deaths that was in some kind of like little tiny corner of the front page. You just don't do it. They're not, this isn't some convoluted strategy to achieve it. And that's not what I believe. I mean, it's basically, they, they are in the business right now of trying to make the government look as good as possible while still maintaining the interests of their readers who are predominantly quite old. Um, and their manner of doing so is occasionally completely deranged like i mean the front pages to do with boris johnson recently especially to do with his child have been you know properly off the scale mad when you consider the severity of what's happening to us but that doesn't mean that you have to presume that it's all some plot over and over again in order to get it off the front page because they have the power to do that regardless um, it's also been a big week for argumentative book lovers uh, thanks to michael Gove's bookshelf <laughs> uh, that was that was monday's twitter fury keeping Keeping the death toll off Twitter's front page. Much um, better. Do, 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 do you think it matters if Gove has has uh, has such lively reads as, as David Irving and the bell curve uh, along his shelf on his shelf? 
Um, yeah, I mean, look, there's no good reason to have a David Irving book on your bookshelf. There, there obviously isn't, because the two the two criteria for having books that you disagree with on your bookshelf is, is obviously going to be that the argument's interesting and you disagree with it, or that the argument is influential and you therefore need to understand it anyway, even if you don't agree with it. Um, I mean, you recently wrote a book, and I'm writing a book now, and I'm, I'm willing to bet there's quite a lot of books on our bookshelves that we don't agree with. I mean, you had a long section about Ayn Rand. So I'm guessing Dorian Linsky and some Anne Rand books that are going to get No, I got it from the library. I refused to buy one. <laughs> oh, wow. Are you serious? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Same with Hayek. <laughs> I wasn't buying them. <laughs> I mean, to be honest, getting a library book of Hayek fucks him twice. <laughs> you deny him the money, but you deny him the principles which he espoused. So you've done terrible work. <laughs> what book from your library would look worst in a televised Zoom conference then? I mean, where to even start? Like, I mean, I, I do have... I do have Hayek on the side. I'm perfectly happy with that. I've got lots of old Alan Moore comics. I mean, that wouldn't look so fantastic. Where, where would you even begin? <laughs> um, Naomi Smith is CEO of Best for Britain. I trust you will be adopting the appropriate tone as prescribed <laughs> by Matt Hancock during this podcast. Naomi, hello. <laughs> hello. Um, which book on your shelf would get you cancelled? Well, look, just just because he and Sarah Vine like oh. the same bedtime stories as Anders Breivik, I mean, doesn't mean he's a Nazi <laughs> sympathiser, okay? Just in the same way as me having a few Delia Smith books on my shelves doesn't mean I don't love Nigella. We're told the plans for release from lockdown are, are coming this weekend. Among the government's guidelines for Britain's returning to work is the curtailment of hot desking, which you think should be gone for good anyway. So if, if one damn thing can come out of this <laughs> pandemic... Uh, why, why is that? Why is hot desking so bad? Because everyone hates it, right? Um, if you're an office regular, you always stick to the same fucking desk every time you go in anyway. And if you're not, and you're somebody that, you know, maybe works from home a lot of the time or away from the office a lot of the time, and you do have to go into the office to hot desk, you then feel really awkward about where is it okay to sit and like whether you're going to be inadvertently sitting in Karen's desk and then you're going to be ostracized by Karen and all of her office mates forever. And because office desks never really get cleaned properly, like if you've seen the cleaners, you know, bless them that come in and have to clean these big corporate environments, you know, you're lucky if a sort of damp dishcloth that's probably been around the loose gets wiped over the desk. And it's just kind of nicer to know that you're sitting in your own filth rather than someone else's. Um, but I may also have been scarred by a man whose surname will remain nameless, but was called David that I used to work with. And he was forever picking his nose. And I think I was pretty traumatized by once watching it land on the communal <laughs> monitor. And I vowed oh, never to come oh, to work again me. without my antibacterial wipes in my bag. Oh. There was a, I'm not sure if you watched Killing Eve, but there was a great line where someone comes in and somees sitting at his desk and she goes, oh, it's hot desking. And he goes, yes, and this is the hot desk I choose every day. Exactly. <laughs> That's my guy. Exactly. Um, so there's this coronavirus contact tracing app that's being trialled in the Isle of Wight. Uh, IT news site The Register argues it probably won't even work, tracks your location, and because the National Cybersecurity Centre keeps your app's ID and part of your postcode in a central server, it may be breaking fundamental human rights laws. But apart from that, <laughs> what do you think? Is it a goer? I mean, look, there are many tech bros falling out over this in the last few days, as you'd expect. Some lauding it, others loathing it. Um, the, the, the fundamental point is that the NHS X app is built around a centralised model, um, similar to the approach that France is taking, while the 
Apple Google contact tracing app is decentralized, and that is what most other countries are using. And Germany flips over to it, I think, uh, either, either at the weekend or last week. And there is even some speculation about whether Brits and French will even be able to travel um, abroad to other countries as a result if travel rights depend on the type of app that your phone has. And the, the, the key difference, as I understand it, and you know, tech listeners don't at me if I get this wrong, between the centralized and decentralized approach is that the centralized app, like the NHS X app, uses Bluetooth to work out if you've been in contact, who you've been in contact with recently. And it then sends your data to a centralized database. And if you get infected, the NHS database then sends an alert to those who have been near you, urging them to self-isolate and get tested. Whereas the decentralized system that the, the Google Apple version simply transmits an anonymous key privately in between users devices and alerts you about an infection if needed so your data stays within the device and doesn't go off to a government database anywhere and also it doesn't rely on uh, notoriously patchy Bluetooth which the NHSX app does so in terms of privacy uh, the Apple Google approach definitely sounds like it will be much more uh, likely to protect your data. I mean, look, it's not like the words government and leaked database haven't made headlines countless times in the past two decades. But beyond the privacy issues, there also seems to be some kind of tech limitations that are worrying people. So Dorian, you and I could both install the NHSX app. We could bump into each other on the street, say hi, and it would be pretty unlikely that that contact between us would be recorded using the government system. Because unless we both constantly have the app on, as in it's on our screen and the phone is in awake mode, it's not going to capture that. Um, and and it, you know, it, it, unless it's active, it's not going to record those contacts. So given that it may not even be a very good way of recording who people have had contact with that's leading lots of people to conclude that the only reason the government wouldn't use the apple google version is that it, their version precludes personal information from being harvested um, now of course the government's trying to reassure everybody that the nhsx app only collects anonymous data but anonymity doesn't mean you can't use a large data set for pretty accurate profiling. Um, if we think about Instagram and Facebook ads that we get in our feeds, for instance, they can be pretty good at targeting and profiling people without you having given them any personal details. But I think Ian might disagree with me on this point because he recently got an advert in his Instagram feed for royal portraits. You may just think that is absolutely terrible at targeting people. Uh, but but I think that's in it in a nutshell. I mean, the, mostly the adverts I get is just for shit I've already bought. So they're good. They're kind of good at targeting me, but in a completely redundant way. And by the way, I have not bought a painting of myself as if I'm wearing a royal outfit. <laughs> Yet. Yet. <laughs> this week, uh, we'll be talking about the progress of the coronavirus in Britain and the rest of Europe. Plus, is lockdown giving British people an unfamiliar taste for authoritarian measures to the extent they actually want drones and robots to control movement? And we'll be rounding up all the Brexit news that's fit to podcast. All that and more after a few reminders from Naomi. If you're listening on Friday, you may have just missed the Romaniacs versus the Bunker live stream on the evening of Thursday, 7th of May. But if you're a clever old Patreon backer listening on Thursday, there's still time to sign up and join in with me, Dorian, Ian, Roz, Alex and Aisha in high-level, sophisticated, quarantine-fueled conversation on Zoom. 
We're putting up a full live video on our Patreon page over the weekend too. So if you did miss it or you want to watch us getting pissed all over again, sign up as a Patreon supporter for as little as $2 a month and the video will be yours. Patreon is the best way to support Romaniacs. You get the podcast early and with no ads. Whoop, whoop. Uh, plus access to the live streams and our mugs and t-shirts, which are back in production. Yes, Romaniacs mugs will be the engine room of Britain's economic recovery. We are, of course, massively grateful to all our Patreon people, now more than ever. So search Patreon Romaniacs and join our underground resistance movement. Patreon backers, we'll see you tonight, right after that NHS applause. Britain passed a grim milestone on Wednesday with 32,313 people dead from COVID-19. We're now officially Europe's worst affected country, overtaking Italy. Daily registered deaths in Britain, which is not quite the same, as I think we've discussed before, as, as, as the number of people who actually died that day, have been falling since the start of May. But the government's early uh, good result of 20,000 deaths is now long in the past. Naomi, this doesn't really seem to be sticking to Boris Johnson. His approval ratings remain high, even though poll ratings for the government's actual actions are worsening. Ipso Mori uh, found a sharp rise in the number of people who think the government acted too late, but not in people who disapprove of the PM. Why is he not carrying the can? Is it still residual sympathy from his own illness? Or is, does he have a sort of an underrated Teflon quality that, um, that naysayers like us can never quite understand? <laughs> Um, I think the answer is probably patriarchy, um, because privileged uh, heterosexual white Oxbridge men don't tend to get held to the same standards as everybody else. Um, if Theresa May had been pr- the prime minister handling all of this and had gotten ill, I just can't imagine she would have been anything other than condemned for having been so foolish as to have been shaking hands and telling people to take it on the chin, um, least of all if it was a Labour prime minister. And you know, new PMs often get a boost after a general election, and he did. And his honeymoon, of course, is being extended first by having been ill and now by, you know, having a baby and, and that making everybody feel good. And it really can't last forever. We've seen Trump's ratings begin to fall over in the US. Um, it, it, it could be that, that similar starts to happen here soon. And it's noticeable that the government's ratings over COVID are considerably lower um, than their overall ratings for, for performance. And COVID is going to be with us for a very long time. Um, and remember that the public initially showed huge support for Tony Blair over Iraq and turned quickly once the horrors became more apparent. So I, I think it will begin to change. Uh, and I enjoyed checking in, like many, on the, on the sort of fun house of Corbyn Twitter uh, <laughs> since, since the great man's departure. And there seems to be a general sort of consensus there that, that Stam is sort of being way too soft um, and that he's apparently just sort of, he's, he's right wing now. Uh, but, you know, even the sort of milder criticisms are just like he's not, he's not sort of channeling anger sufficiently at the government. Um, certainly, I, I would probably be a bit angrier. Um, do you think that this is still, that the situation is still that... Um, it just looks very, very bad if he kind of really piles in there. I do. Or do you think he's holding back too much? I, I do. And I think when we look at other countries and their opposition parties, and I'm sure he is looking to some of them as well, this is a pretty standard pattern as far as I can see. Um, again, I think that's something that we probably will start to see changing in the coming weeks. Um, but what you've got to remember is that he is also an MP and it is also his inbox that is getting flooded by constituents that are just having overwhelming concerns um, about, you know, very, very personal and 
horrendously emotional issues and I think to be seen to be making political capital out of it is you know not a good look for them and is what they're going to be very very worried about um but again I I think I think slowly 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 that that will ramp up and of course we had the first PMQs today between uh Johnson and Keir and and you know the first time that he wasn't just um debating against Dominic Raab and and I think we will begin to see that change I personally you know would love it if we'd had a really um angry opposition on all of this but would it have helped them in the long term I'm not so sure I, I think it probably has to date been the right strategy Ian, what do you think, uh, you know, a, a tougher approach from Starmer could, could sort of actually achieve? Because a lot of this is sort of, um, it's just, it's sort of, it's sort of pleasing the kind of base. It's basically making a statement. It's going, I am, you, this isn't good enough. I am angry. Are there things that, given the kind of parliamentary ar- arithmetic, are there things that someone could actually achieve that he's not achieving? Or would it just really be more about the optics? Well, we know the areas um, where they're weak because, oddly enough, the the public support for the government's approach, while it remains, isn't uniform. It's actually quite weak on areas. uh, It's weak on testing and it's weak on equipment. So basically, I mean, the two key areas that that they're failing. Um, And actually, there is an understanding from most of the polls I've seen suggesting that they think that the government um, went into lockdown too late. It's just that that hasn't sort of congealed into a general um, attack on the government. So he can focus on those areas. And in fact, most of the time, that's what he's done. But he's, you, you can see in his behavior, you can see the conversations that have taken place in this office. And they're clearly, you know, whenever, whenever there's any danger of looking as if we're being party political, wherever it looks like we're not recognizing what the government has achieved, we need to step back. And I think probably on that latter point, it's actually correct that he just hasn't quite been stern enough. Um, he had a moment with Rob sort of the other week where, where, you know, lots of commentators sort of said, well, actually, you know, he came out of that better. I mean, Rob looked like a bit of a petulant child, but then Rob kind of always looks like a petulant child. Um, and, but actually, that wasn't the, the, the take I took. I mean, he was asking questions that had come from medical staff saying, these guys feel afraid. These guys are raising warnings. Rob was responding it to, to it by saying, well, look, um, your your tone is wrong. You're, you're you're deciding to you know approach us without good faith. And Starmer backed away, and he sort of thought like by doing that, you are tacitly encouraging that line of attack from the government, and not only from the government, but from some parts of the press. And that's probably unhelpful. I think he probably can do more damage than he's deciding to do right now, specifically on the areas where the public have already lost faith in the government. Well, the um, I mean, because there was quite a lot of enthusiasm for Rosanna Allen Khan's um, sort of sterner. Hancock mm-hmm. aggravating tone. Um, yeah, and, and I thought those people. It was completely. Re- I mean, her, so you know, this is a question she asked in the comments. Um, entirely reasonable, but tough. And of course, quite quickly, you saw Matt Hancock, who actually, on on numerous occasions, turns out to be quite an unlikable human being and quite a cynical one as well. I mean, today he was out there talking about whether the police should be involved with Ferguson and stuff. You're just thinking, like, what are you talking about, mate? If you don't have anything sensible to say, then just shut up. Now, in the comments, he suddenly sort of came forward and went, I really regret her tone. And again, you just thought, and actually, I kind of did, I, I did sort of suspect that there was something about gender in there as well. It was the, the well, there must have been, because there was nothing wrong with her tone. Her tone was, yeah. was perfectly mm. fine. Except that I think that they've, they, they assume, sort of partly what we're assuming, of that there is a way of silencing criticism by alluding to, um, you know, the, the extent of public support for the government and this idea of, come on, let's just buckle in together. And they're using that as a general defensive shield. 
Um, and certainly, they, it looks like they're perfectly prepared to cling to it in exactly the same way as they're quite prepared to push this idea of the, the press having lost you know, yeah. any real right to ask hostile questions at all. Well, I think you, it, it's not, I mean, Kia may not have been as um, vociferous as we would have liked, but lots, I mean, like Rosina, others have been too, um, because mm-hmm. you know, it's how I roll. I often listen into the select committee um, meetings, and uh, there was, um, you know, where streeting was very good against uh, Gove earlier in the week uh, at the House of Lords. Um, um, EU Select Committee yesterday, you had John Kerr, you had Johnny Oates um, and others from, from Labour and the Lib Dems really going pretty hard on Gove, m- much harder than we've seen from Keir. So it, it's not all about just the leader, that the, the opposition parties are trying to uh, ramp up um, a- against the government and break away from this, uh, you know, having to toe, toe a line while we're in a crisis. It's also worth mentioning that there is decline in government support. I mean, we're not yeah, we're is. not there yet, and there's, there's still overall support, but it is you know it's in decline and quite consistently in decline as well. Yeah. and there, there is some improvement in Keir Starmer's personal ratings yeah. as well from a couple of polls that I've seen. Yeah, but it's all largely irrelevant given that we haven't got an election for four years, and the government yes. knows that. <laughs> <laughs> but there is this curious sort of incident well, there was a, on social media where there was a kind of facebook post that went viral with sort of you know extracts of it on twitter and you know <laughs> britain's worst facebook granddad alan sugar <laughs> retweeting that one um you know it's a kind of rant about journalists and missing the mood of the country and this seems like a kind of a very kind of brexity attack dog energy that didn't really surround surrounded the project of brexit but did not was not attached to theresa may but is with Boris Johnson. And it seems like he d- there is actually, in the same way that Corbyn obviously had some very vociferous kind of online activists, it seems like there's a lot of people, so many, in fact, that people just thought it assumed that it was bots. But in fact, it is actually just a lot of angry people cutting and pasting. There does seem to be this kind of like, we're kind of like patri- patriotic sort of Praetorian guard around, mm. uh, around Johnson, um, which just sort of which seems to hate the media. Yeah, it's such a weird, almost abusive relationship between um, between the press and Johnson and, and, and then further on, because the government utilizes this as much as it can. It directs it towards the media as much as it can. And yet we still get the newspapers sort of desperately trying to find his favor and, and providing positive coverage. I think most of the stuff is genuine, that people actually have, like a, a lot of people out there have an instinctive sense of, you know, this is not the time to be criticizing the government. And it's it, sort of important to remind them over and over again that it is triply the time, not just because it's always the time and not just because it's severe in the circumstances that we find ourselves and the government is amassing an awful lot of executive power, but also specifically because they are talking this way. It is important for the media to be extremely critical because the moment that people start suggesting that you shouldn't be criticizing the government is when you have a social problem as well as the problem in the executive. We're trying to silence the sound. And what we've got at the moment is this week is this weird kind of two narratives where on the one hand, there's this record death toll, um, which is, is, is kind of a shocking figure and a shocking sign of failure. But then elsewhere in Europe, you see sort of Germany and Spain um, loosening their lockdowns to some degree. And obviously that's, that's still a fairly, a fairly experimental stage. And then Rishi Sunak uh, apparently talking about finding ways to kind of reduce the furlough scheme um, because apparently people were getting addicted to it, which seemed like a remarkably tone-deaf way of describing it, and sort of like, oh, they're not going to want to go back to work. Um, and this would involve kind of, I think, you know, lowering the caps, lowering the payments. And they're talking about this happening in July. But, I mean, 
for that to have leaked or, or been, you know, deliberately or otherwise, for that to come out now um, seems extraordinarily um, tone deaf and insensitive. Basically, you know, people who are who, who literally cannot go into work because of this virus, sort of being portrayed as like as, as shirkers. I mean, what's how did you, how did you take that plan? I mean, they're going to have to. Ch- I mean, he has to change it at some point. I, I, I don't. The, the, the tone and, and the language is obviously appalling. Um, but everyone recognises that it's it's unaffordable to stay the way that we are. Most of the economic sort of content I've said has, has basically been warning about allowing excess uncertainty because the extent of the uncertainty is always is already so severe and seems so long lasting that it's going to do tremendous economic damage beyond the economic damage we anyway suffer. So what the one thing the government can do is provide the kind of certainty that is available. I mean, one of those areas is you would have thought that it is kind of about time that the government says, if you're the kind of person who works at a desk, then chances are you're going to be working at a desk for a very, very long time in your home. Like this, this situation for you in terms of your working environment is not going to change anytime soon. A lot of people who are currently furloughed are, are not going to find their way back to work. And I think that's becoming increasingly clear. And the sooner that there can be some degree of certainty over that, the sooner there can be some kind of response. So you kind of don't, I've got to say, I don't envy him the position that he's in, even if some of the language that came out was, was regrettable. Uh, and Naomi, finally, is the, is the shine coming off our, uh, our socialist, our blue socialist <laughs> chancellor? <laughs> well, I mean, I think when you, when you start with such a, a high, there's probably only one direction that you can go in. Um, like Ian, I don't envy him. I think it's a very, 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 very difficult situation to be in. Um, and, you know, where where is the money going to come from? Um, on our sister podcast, the, the Daily Bunker, I interviewed Ian Mulhern, chief economist at, at Tony Blair Institute earlier this week. Uh, and we were talking about, you know, how we are going to end up paying for all of this. Is it going to be increased taxes? Um, you know, is it going to be allowing, you know, more inflation? Or is it going to be more austerity? Um, and these are the exact uh, issues that, that Sunak is going to have to be going over and over and over with Treasury, trying to game out different scenarios and 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 how we're going to uh, get back onto any semblance of track again. Um, and it's it's going to take bloody ages. So, like Ian, agree, we need that certainty of sorts of of any kind of description sooner rather than later. Um, and being the bearer of bad news is, uh, you know, <laughs> is bound to take uh, the, the shine off uh, our golden boy, Sunak. Next up, is the COVID emergency giving Britain or awakening in Britain a taste for the authoritarian? And is it a leave versus remain thing? Research by the LSE, thanks Ross Taylor, found that 75% of people would be in favour of setting up checkpoints during the lockdown. A similar number support making it a criminal offence to spread false information about the disease. 41% support the use of force to make people return to their homes. 30% would be in favour of using drones to track people's movements to ensure social distancing. And 20% would be in favour of armed judges <laughs> storming the streets. <laughs> I don't, the last one, the la- I might have to check the numbers on the last one. <laughs> uh, research into Google data by Ben Ansell of Nuffield College suggests there might be some correlation with Brexit, though it's early days, but basically remaining areas like London and Brighton are going to work less and locking down more. 
but that could be just because more of us have jobs that allow us to work from home. Mm-hmm. Naomi, do you think from, from what we've seen so far, does the leave remain divide add up? Because I suppose what surprised me is that traditionally, and I'm sure you remember these, these kind of studies at the time, leavers have been far more authoritarian. Mm-hmm. Now it seems the li- sort of libertarian anti-lockdown energy, you know, I am a free man of the land, um, seems yeah. to be coming from Brexiters, <laughs> while yeah. Remainers are more kind of like, you know, <laughs> stay in your homes. I know, I know. It's, it's incredible. I mean, look, I think I, I, I've said before that um, much of this comes down to our really woeful constitutional arrangements that leave us ripe for authoritarian takeover. Um, you know, if we have better safeguards in place and a less slave-safer approach to the Constitution, I would certainly be more in favour of things like ID cards or contact tracing apps. Um, and I think we're, we're really complacent about authoritarianism in this country because the population at large probably is more naturally authoritarian than the average politician. And you've touched on this, Dorian, but I think it, it really is interesting, um, this, this reaction from the right in both the US and the UK to the measures that have been taken, the, the measures that have been taken. Um, insofar as it shows just how libertarian the rights reactions have become they think the state has gone too far whereas most of us liberals would say that either it's been sort of broadly proportionate or that they've not gone far enough soon enough and that historical context is important like 150 years being a liberal has generally implied believing that the state can only prohibit an individual from doing something in order to prevent harm towards others Uh, And once upon a time, (laughs) uh, the conservative critique of that position was that the state needed wider discretion to constrain individuals in the name of Mm. the common good. And this now really seems to have flipped, as you said, you know, to the point where the right now want to narrow that discretion to the point where it doesn't even cover uh, an individual in doing something which harms and endangers others' lives. And that does relate to Brexit insofar as the conservatives used to be the party in favour of European internationalism and now obviously flips have become ultra antis, just as the right used to be promoting more state intervention, much to liberal chagrin and now want barely any. It's funny how you talk about America and of course a lot of the people who are the kind of people in a mood for storming a state house, uh, as long as the governor is a Democrat, um, are the <laughs> yeah. same people that kind of support an agency like ICE. Yeah. You know, and like ra- rounding seven- up immigrants. And so yeah. they, they're authoritarian in, in some, some ways. Well, I was going to say authoritarian this... in the sheets, libertarian in the streets. Um, but you know they. they... <laughs> but that seventy-five percent that support checkpoints, like they did not grow up in Northern Ireland in the nineties. Like mm, these yeah. are people that are saying yes to something that they have no concept of and haven't had to live with. There's different. There's also like different um, factors that are hitting at the same time, right? Like we like the right for the last few years has seems to be undergoing a process whereby it rejects the concept of complexity and tr- and very often trust in institutions. And I think lots of the stuff that we see now, especially around coronavirus, is to do with that more than it's to do with some kind of instinctive love of liberty. It's basically, you won't embrace the complexity. So it's quite easy whenever anyone starts talking about anything remotely scientific or anything, especially things where there's no right answer. To just go, well, fuck it, I'm just a bloody-minded old so-and-so. I'm such a stuff, you know, and I mm. demand my freedom to go down the shop and buy some milk. And it's also quite easy to just say, well, I just don't trust the institutions and what they're telling us. And you see, I mean, that is, we've seen now mm. that that process is clearly in a much worse place in the States than it is in the UK. Like, we've all, I think we've sat here for a few years and been like, 
look, Brexit's the, the worst thing I've seen. And then I saw Trump. And I will accept that no matter how bad Brexit is, Trump does look worse. And over the last few days, I sort of thought like, well, my God, I mean, really, it's, it's, almost, it's almost damaging to us to have Trump there fucking up so like being just such a profoundly reprehensible human being because mm. it makes you feel better about your own state when really you, you mm. have no legitimate entitlement to do so yeah you you're right these skeptics are like they're always the same like whether it's climate change trans rights lockdown rights immigration brexit they, they get triggered over the tiniest little thing and then proclaim all of this outrage and self-pity over whatever the issue of the day is and you know there is overlap like you know bloody um tim martin of weatherspoons fame you know he's chief among them he was massively pro-brexit and now he's massively anti-social distancing um so that someone like Lyle- link and is it under education that's the link i don't know well someone like um you know lionel shriver there is a certain sort of group think where it's just been decided that you should kind of be that if you're pro-brexit you kind of have to be pro-virus um <laughs> yeah and There's you know a- or alison pearson or you know these people that just have to talk down you know, talk down death tolls, you know, call for, you know, reopening the economy tomorrow. And but, it's just a strong, yeah. I don't understand quite what the intellectual logic is. Well, well there isn't any, but I think that's Ian's point. It's that it, these are all complex issues to get your head around. You know, they're not easy. It's not easy to understand the difficulties of free trade agreements. It's not easy to understand uh, viral load and, uh, you know, pathogenic issues and and so it just it, it's like no no that's too hard for me to think about therefore i'm going to dismiss it and box it as a thing that's bad and i no, i don't want it i don't want to engage with it i just want to you know carry on with my life as it was it's almost unhelpful when we talk about this stuff uh, the current debate around ideas of like is it liberal is it authoritarian libertarian because i mean like naomi said it's it's the harm principle and the harm principle is meant to expand you know freedom in a, in a, in a egalitarian way so when we say we're going to lock down in order to prevent the virus spreading. It's not like we're giving up on the idea that we should have the freedom to go outside to the pub, which is, by the way, how it's usually portrayed by these guys. I will never give up the freedom to go to the pub. Look, if anyone is going to fucking fight to their death for the right to go to the pub, it's me. And especially right now, I would actually eat my fucking legs if someone let me go to the pub right now. It's not like we're sitting here going, I've decided I hate the pub. It's that you're deciding you're going to give up on this freedom for now in order to expand another set of freedoms, namely the freedoms that you lose if you get sick, the freedoms that people lose if they die. So you're still making a liberal judgment. I mean, you could come down on some pretty authoritarian stuff. I don't think as authoritarian as any of the things we mentioned in this poll and still be working on a liberal basis as long as you are fundamentally measuring up those freedoms. Different countries are more susceptible to authoritarianism because of their histories. Uh, I don't particularly want to get into national character, but certainly their, their, their histories. Um, the British pride themselves on, on sort of not being told what to do. That isn't necessarily just a, a right-wing thing. Obviously, you know, our friend George Orwell and the Lion and the Unicorn, there's a lot about kind of, you who's know... That, who's that, Dora? George, George Orwell. <laughs> George, um, George Orwell. He was a, he was a writer man. Um, and, you know, but there's a lot there about kind of privacy and, you know, many of the kind of most cherished British or English traits are just kind of like, you know, just let me get on with my life kind of thing. Um, does that, is there any contradiction between that and then, you know, kind of send in the drones? Or is, <laughs> is it just, is it just an extreme, I mean, is it, is it just the extreme circumstances? Does it even make sense to talk about, you know, this kind of latent, uh, you know, sort of thirst for authoritarianism? Is, or is it just people 
because I don't feel like, I mean, I'm kind of quite sort of strict on this stuff. It's not that I'm kind of like have this craving uh, to see people kind of like banged up um, <laughs> in their homes and kind of dragged screaming away from their Tai Chi in the park. Um, yeah, it, and it, yeah. It's partly useful, right? Because it also stopped while well, doing the thing that you need to do. It also means that you keep vigilance on and especially the police. And I think most of the behavior we've seen from the police recently has been much improved by the fact that there was actually quite sort of universal outrage when they were overstepping the mark. And some of that outrage does come from this, this idea that you find, weirdly enough, you find it all the way through English history, and it's never referred to about the present or the future. It's never referred to as a progressive idea. It's always referred to as ancient English liberties. So like even in the mid-1600s, when the levelers are campaigning against the king, they don't talk about, we want to come up with you know, a more liberal country. Or, well, obviously, they don't use that word. They wouldn't have any idea what the fuck it meant. But they're basically saying, we want to go back to the old freedoms. And in most of English history, that's, that's sort of referred to as anything before 1066. Mm. It's basically when, when everything was apparently all right and kings were lovely ruddy-cheeked old guys. And then, you know, the French came over it and screwed everything up. So it sort of has a useful function in that way, even though it's obviously babbling nonsense for us to act that way, even when we're in a moment when more authoritarian measures are necessary. But that doesn't mean that it isn't, it isn't ultimately nonsense. Like, you, you look at um, the German aversion to, um, to, to sort of, to, uh, sorry, its commitment to privacy um, over electronic communication. And most of that is you know, encouraged by what happened to them in East Germany after the end of the Second World War. Mm. And we do not, as much as we might like to say how much the English like their privacy, we don't actually really do much about it when it yeah. comes to online issues in a way, when it comes to data, in a way that the Germans actually do in a much more pragmatic and practical way. And despite the efforts of the Telegraph and Tory backbenchers, um, it's like fewer than 20% of, of Brits want a swift end to the lockdown. There's actually been a huge amount of self-policing, social responsibility. You know, when I go out... Mm. Um, you know, in my, in my neighborhood, it's like, you never, you, you know, this I hardly ever see a policeman and I hardly, I didn't see any need for police. Like people generally seem to mm-hmm. have sort of taken it upon themselves. Is there a point where that sort of consensus will, will begin to crack and those numbers would start to sort of, to shoot up? I don't think it's likely to happen when we're still number one in the death charts. Mm. You know, the, the, a lot of that is driven by fear. Mm. Greed and fear are the two big, you know, behavioural motivators of humans. Um, and at the moment, it's <laughs> All right, fear. Lex, <laughs> Lex <Luthor. laughs> You see, Superman, greed and fear. Um, it's true. Um, and, and, and people are, you know, very, very fearful about coming into contact with other people at the moment, you know, people outside their household and, that, that that is surely what is driving a huge amount of this um and i just don't see that compliance beginning to waver while we are still the number one hotbed for coronavirus in the whole of europe um, and also some of this uh, research the lse research overwhelmingly supports the idea that police legitimacy is rooted in people's direct contact with officers and of course some of the powers are used against people who aren't in contact with them um or not in a positive way, you know, put sort of poor and marginalized groups. Does this, in a way that this pandemic brings to the surface all kinds of sort of festering issues, does, do we, you have those concerns of sort of long-term problems of legitimacy that, that somebody like, like me, you know, middle-class white guy or whatever, you know, if a policeman comes up and just goes, Oh, could you, you know, can you kind of move along there and put some clothes on? I will just go, <laughs> I will go fair dues. 
Um, because I don't have that experience that some communities have of, of you know, of harassment and of distrust yeah. of, of the police. Um, so is this just, is this like another one of those kind of like just long-term problems that suddenly has, um, can become more of an issue? Go on, Ian, you can take that one. <laughs> <laughs> I just, I feel really awkward about like three white people talking about this. <laughs> no, I mean... Good. It's invariably the case every single time that people have a completely different impression of policing because the police do not police in the same way depending on who you are. Um, so this will exacerbate all of the pre-existing relationships that people had with the police and those who pretty much instinctively trusted them before will continue to do so. Those who are suspicious will continue to do so. And those groups that felt most affected by them will continue to do so. And by the way, that will also go... I mean, yeah, from... I, I mean, this is anecdotal, but, but my experience of talking about the contact tracing app was that people who were not white were much more reticent about being on that app than mm. people who were, just at, at least in my social circle. Now for our segment, To the Barricades. Every week we set up our virtual soapbox on Speaker's Corner for a panellist to sing the praises of their chosen cause. Uh, this week, Naomi, what have you got? Well, it's it's a cause that we're going to make for ourselves, right? So you're probably listening to this on VE Day. And my plea is that if you're listening to this, go out and claim it. It is our day. It was Europe's victory over nationalism. And the bloody Daily Mail is talking about it and literally using the phrases victory over Europe Day rather than victory in Europe. And that is just fucking offensive on so many levels. So fuck them. Go and celebrate victory over nationalism. Go and celebrate European solidarity. Make a meal, I don't know, with a British starter, uh, Italian main course, French dessert, drink some Spanish carver with a bit of Plymouth gin chaser if you fancy or elder very cordial with a shot of orangina or grenadine if you don't drink dance around your kitchen to some german craft work and french daft punk and british fat boy slim look i'm really showing my age here but just go and do all of those things and reclaim it because this is our day and it is not theirs notice that naomi i think is out swearing me today <laughs> something about coronavirus is fucking set that shit loose <laughs> I, I was unfortunately being as a as a world war ii geek when i was a kid I was just, I was thinking, I was thinking, really? But Spain was Franco. And should we have German music? <laughs> should we be drinking Russian vodka instead? <laughs> it, it does kind of show how much Europe has changed since then. It for the does. better. And I don't know what could have, what could have caused that, but we certainly wouldn't <laughs> want to leave it. Doesn't matter. <laughs> Doesn't matter. <laughs> uh, Finally, it's Brexit news round as we rip through a few of the smaller stories that would be keeping us awake at night if not for the other thing. First up, <laughs> coronavirus has massively hampered the government's ability to recruit the 50,000 extra customs officers it needs at the border after Brexit. Applications to the training programme for new customs officials have dropped by 80% since February, uh, understandably. Naomi, do, does this mean that you know, workers in other roles will have to be kind of forcibly moved to help staff the border? I mean, if you just don't have enough proper customs officers. I mean, it's just insane. Like, just let's just focus on that number for a second. 50,000 new civil servants, right? So the entire European Commission only employs 32,000 people. 
So all the Daniel Hanan crap about cutting red tape and bureaucrats is now proven to be the total farce that we always knew it was. We're going to be increasing all of that and the British taxpayer is going to have to pay for it. And if you're pulling them away from other departments, if you're you know, pulling them out of HMRC or out of uh, you know, other roles, other, other parts of the civil service to do it, I mean, A, you know, these are humans. They've applied to do one job, not another. And, you know, they're going to do it very reluctantly, I would imagine. Um, and also, you know, what, what's the opportunity cost? How are you going to backfill those roles? So, yeah, it's nuts. Absolutely nuts. Ian, we talk about the, um, <clears throat> the extension that we would like to see every week. Um, I mean, are they just going to be, uh, obviously, politically, they don't want to do it. Um, but more and more of these kind of logistical problems seem to be arising. Is, is it just going to become? Um, is it just going to become unavoidable? I mean, if they don't, if they just sort of for political reasons say we're not we're not having an extension, what's going to happen in all of these areas where the sort of planning that was going on that you know wasn't sufficient anyway has obviously just kind of come to a grinding halt uh, well, due to the pandemic. Yeah, I mean the thing is, but increasingly they're embracing <clears throat> it, right? Like, I mean, I think I've read like three pieces on not extending um, the transition that have referred to the fact that, well, look, it's all chaotic anyway. So basically, let's just slip this little bit of extra, you know, chaos under under the radar, because people will have it, it will be less noticeable to have some kind of no deal at the end of the year if you're in the middle of um, COVID than it would have been in normal times. Now that's both true and like functionally insane and almost to the point of just saying like well, what, what is this country that you're living in i mean do, do you care about it remotely that you would a- apply further problems to something that is already struggling i do think there's the, the the idea of having to make a decision on the extension halfway through this year and then it needing to be triggered at the end of the year is quite interesting because halfway through this year it's the summer it won't it won't be quite as severe the, the crisis it's frankly, you know, perfectly likely is not as pleasant a thing as it is to say. And many in Europe and Britain are thinking about it, that by the time we're getting into the autumn and the winter, things could be quite bad again. Um, and, we, you know, when you see second waves, when you see the impact that typically happens in winter over, over what we're experiencing, that could be quite severe. So it, it could be that at the exact moment that they're going to need those talks to be achieving something and for attention to be on it, and the exact moment that they've been relying strategically on being able to, you know, just block it out until they get towards the end and hoping that the mm. other side will cave, will actually be the point that people are at least able to pay attention to the, to the negotiations. Absolutely. And also remember, transition was in no small part about business having the time to get ready and that certainly hasn't happened in the last two months is very unlikely to happen in the next month and as you say come the autumn come uh, the winter when the the virus may come back in a big second wave they are certainly not going to be able to focus on getting ready for that incredibly imminent deadline so it's not mm. just about the negotiations. It is also about the total lack of preparedness um, amongst our businesses to be able to do that. Now, Gove will wang on about, <clears throat> oh, we need certainty, certainty, certainty for business, um, which, of course, we do. Um, and he will then say, well, not having an extension and business knowing for a fact that we definitely leave with or without a deal gives them some certainty. And you know what? He's right. It gives them the certainty to either redeploy resource outside of the UK or to switch up 
um, how, how, how investments are done. Um, that is the only certainty it can give that business. And it will not, therefore, give certainty to the economy as a whole, because that, of course, impacts jobs and taxes. And of course, they can't even do it, right? Because at the moment, I mean, no one can hire anyone. You can't do job interviews. You can't, I mean, the, the basics of needing to, de- to deploy towards another location is simply not possible at the moment when everyone's in lockdown. So even if, you know, even under his argument, you're just like, well, they, A, they don't have that certainty because they don't know whether there's going to be something or not. And B, they wouldn't be able to act on it right now, even if they did. Next up, Northern Ireland's health minister has warned that Brexit puts at risk the ability for Ireland to conduct contract tracing of people arriving on the island from the UK. Um, in where were, what sort of state were data sharing arrangements in, uh, sort of post-Brexit arrangements before the virus, and how does this affect them? So they stay the same during transition, obviously, and then when they're over, it's you know the same as in, in most other areas you look at. Of Britain's going to have to come up with its system, um, and you know companies that still want to transfer data are going to have to come up with adequacy agreements that show that they um, you know abide by the European rules. Uh, you know it, it's quite re- we haven't, of course, because you know w- which fairy could possibly imagine they would be so generous as to tell us what they actually intended to fucking do with all of this freedom that they've been desperate to be coming for. But we haven't heard anything from the government that indicates what they particularly want to do with, with data or what kind of settings. We presume that they would want quite high standards, but you know we've presumed many things about them in that regard over the past that just haven't held up to be true. Um, and a lot of it will, of course, be affected by the the third party deals that we do with with other trading partners and and see what the requirements are there, particularly with the US, where you know Silicon Valley has been um, rather upset with the quite stringent requirements that have been presented by the EU. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the other things that is sort of big in the Brexit news this week, <laughs> towards ever thus, of course, is Northern Ireland. Um, Gove has appeared in front of a, a two committees in the last week, House of uh, Commons Committee uh, that Hillary Benn chairs and the House of Lords EU Select Committee. And in both, he really dug in hard on this issue of, of Northern Ireland. Now, let's remember... The Northern Ireland Protocol is not something that is political. It's not part of the political declaration. It is legal. Um, And the UK has a legal commitment to uphold the protocol. And so far, there is absolutely no evidence that they're doing it. Um, Gove just keeps saying that we need a light touch border in the Irish Sea in order to protect the Northern Irish economy. Um, And the EU and Ireland and Northern Ireland feel that the UK is really trying to wriggle out of this legal commitment. And they almost want to dare Dublin to erect a hard border on the island of Ireland and then make them responsible for breaking the Good Friday Agreement themselves. Essentially, no one considers the UK at the moment to be a bona fide negotiating partner. Um, and that is even beginning to make some in Europe question whether they even want a close, close relationship with, with a country like ours anyway. Um, there is just absolutely you know, minimal levels of trust between us and them. And of course, that hurts us globally if we're not seen as trustworthy trading partners. And I think it's quite interesting to just sort of think about what happens if we do renege on an international treaty uh, regarding the Northern Ireland Protocol. Well, first off, it means we can probably kiss goodbye to a US trade deal because the US uh, uh, um, Congress has said, you know, absolutely no way are we going to give you a trade deal if you threaten the Good Friday Agreement. And I don't think Gover want to be seen as having reneged on an international treaty. So he's just probably going to double down on this trope that, oh, the UK was ready. We were ready to put a light touch border in the Irish Sea to protect the Northern Irish economy. And it was bad old Europe that chose to be so heavy handed on things like the level playing field and trying to force us to have an office in Belfast. And that's absolutely unreasonable behavior, um, uh, you know, to try and force a sovereign independent nation to do something it didn't want to do. 
So legally, it would probably end up in arbitration before the courts, but it would all take way, way longer than the pretty much one shot we have at getting an extension by the end of June. And lastly, fish, no matter how many times we chuck the issue back into the sea, it swims right back. <laughs> UK negotiators have warned once again, the EU must drop the common fisheries policy if there's to be any chance of a deal being struck by the end of June. And this is good. This gives us a sense of consistency in difficult times, doesn't it? Arguing about <laughs> fucking common fisheries policy. <laughs> why, why, why is it such a totemic issue? Considering, you know, the number of people that it, that it actually employs, it seems to take up an enormous amount of Brexit headspace. Uh, so why, why is it such an issue? And what's the latest hitch? Um, I just wish Roz was here because she's so good on this. It's, it, Roz does fish. <laughs> Roz, Roz is good on fish. Is it because fish and chips is our sort of perceived national dish or some nonsense like that? I mean, apropos of those 50,000 customs bureaucrats that we were talking about earlier, um, the cost is more than the, of them is more than the entire value of the UK sea fishing industry annual catch, which is only uh, around 980 million. Hmm. Ian. I, I just think it's because people get it. And it's it's kind of territorial. It's a, it's an object that you can see. Everyone knows what a fish looks like. <laughs> it plays into the island nations. I mean, basically, it's it's just simple enough to comprehend, and it has a kind of bring up the border sort of um, echo around it. So I think they'll cling to it. And look, at the moment, they're they're putting their back into it as much as they can. They insist they're not going to give way. It, it looks like they're going to carry it all the way up to the line. And my concern, as sort of mentioned earlier, is you can carry that thing all the way up to the line, but you're presuming that your negotiating partner and indeed you are going to have any capacity or any even emotional or intellectual ability to negotiate at that stage. And if coronavirus doesn't work out the way that we want it to, it's actually possible that that won't be the case. I remember as a kid reading about the, uh, I was a teenager reading about the Cod War and thinking, wow, the British really are like way too into fish. <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I don't know. You don't think you should have wars named after foods? <laughs> I mean, not, especially not Cod. I mean, that's just not an impressive war animal. You know, if it was a lion, it's the Tiger Wars or something, that would make more sense. It's better than the War of Jenkins' Ear, as wars go. <laughs> We've reached the end of the show, which means it's time for the Brexit Bridge. We're building our connection back to Europe at a rate of 100,000 feet per day, a target we will definitely meet. <laughs> Each week, we pick a value we want to bring with us. And I'm being optimistic because I'm, I'm a bit fed up uh, with the lockdown. Got to be honest with you. Um, it's wearing on the nerves. And I just saw that Sicily, a place I've been on holiday uh, a few times, um, says it's going to be offering special bargain packages to woo holidaymakers uh, mm-hmm. back when, when, you know, obviously airports <laughs> and borders are open. Um, and it did just make me think about the, 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 the tourism ministry. I have no idea. There's no timetable here. But when it reopens, just the thought of, of being able to go on holiday to Europe, which post-Brexit oh. felt like a very... It felt more emotionally charged than it did mm. before. But it just feels really like, particularly places like Sicily that rely, and, you know, there's obviously a huge part, of, loads of places in the Mediterranean, you know, where tourism is just a huge part of their industry and they're not very affluent areas. Um, and it just thought, well, if they're going to be, you know, giving you these like, nice little enticements, go there, buy a lot of fish. <laughs> um, <laughs> 
you know, it sort of shows the support. And it just seems like, it just seems like, I don't know, I feel like holidays after this, after Brexit, after coronavirus, are going to be extremely emotionally charged. Yeah. Um, and I would mm. like to just, I'd like to go back and recommend other people go to just some of their favorite places in Europe, especially if those aren't big cities and they are places that need tourists. Mm. Something to look forward to eventually. Can't wait. I'm going to, like, I th- I'll just go mad. I'll just start <clears throat> hugging people randomly <clears throat> in the street. But there, yeah, is it, yeah. God, God help them in Sicily. I find <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I need to express human contact. I love that. Just all these Italians just going, this is too emotionally, too emotionally <laughs> yeah. expressive. He's Brits. He's Brits. What happened to the stiff upper lip, guys? <laughs> and that's the show. Thanks to Ian and Emmy. Enjoy the victory over Europe bank holiday. <laughs> All that's left is our theme tune, Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop, and a thanks to our latest Patreon backers. Hello, and thanks from me to Irene McMillan, Marsha Nicholson, Philip Fry, Mark DeWitt, Mike, Rachel Keane, and James Lloyd. Big thanks for your support from me to Stu Smith, William Alice, Lewis Paget, Benjamin Robinson, Bill Harley, Andrew Smith, and Lukash Kupiech. And thanks from me to Tony Power, David, Antonella Tassini, Dean Morrison, Andy Mullen, Esther, and Richard Goddard. We'll see you all next week. Take care of yourselves. Romaniacs was presented by Dorian Lensky with Ian Dunt and Naomi Smith. Audio production and scripting was by me, Alex Reese, the producer. As Andrew Harrison, the assistant producer, to check a Archbold and Romaniacs is a Podmasters production. Thank you.